This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, I'm joined by author Phoebe Farag Mikhail, and she has written the book called Putting Joy into practice, seven ways to lift your spirit from the early church. Thank you so much, Phoebe, for being here. How badly did I butcher your name? Actually, you did very well. <laughs> you, did, you did very well. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. <laughs> yes. And your your background is Egyptian. And I, I find that just incredibly fascinating. And we're going to be talking about the Coptic Church. And we were talking a little bit before recording right now. Um, I have been really interested in the desert fathers and mothers that went into the Egyptian desert in the first um, few centuries of Christianity. And your experience with the Coptic Church in the United States, I know that there's very little known in general about the Coptic Church. And even the name Coptic we're talking about is probably not understood and what is meant by the Coptic Church. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background on what some of those um, differences are or some of those particularities are. Sure. Um, and I, you know, growing up in the U.S., um, being Coptic Orthodox was was definitely interesting <laughs> mm. uh, when I people would ask me what re- my religion is. And I would say I'm a Christian in the Coptic Orthodox Church. And mm. they would say, Coptic, what's that? Is that like Catholic? <laughs> and, you know, if they were slightly mm-hmm. more well-informed, they might say, is that like Greek Orthodox? <laughs> mm. yeah. And each time I'd be like, it's a kind of like it. A little few differences. Yeah. Um, but to give you... Um, uh, more of a uh, an accurate overview. <laughs> um, the Coptic Orthodox Church was founded in the first century um, when St. Mark the Apostle, the one who wrote the Gospel according to St. Mark, um, mm-hmm. uh, evangelized to Egypt. Um, and we place the date around 64 AD. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the scholars have gone back and forth about when that might actually have happened. Um, but uh, so that and so that is the we would say when Christians in Egypt were evangelized. Um, some people actually believe there may have even been Christians earlier because Alexandria was kind of a cultural center of mm. the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. um, and so there were also many a big Jew. There was a big Jewish community in Alexandria, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and also. Um, Another so there's that part that possibility of how Christianity might have spread there, um, and then the other part is that ancient Egyptian religion has in it the idea of the resurrection of the dead mm. and uh, an immortal soul and the afterlife, mm. and so it is also quite possible that Egyptians um, uh, took on Christianity quickly and early um, mm. because it made sense. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the idea made sense. And so if you look into church history, maybe the first five centuries of Christianity in Egypt um, would have been called the Church in Alexandria. Mm. That was one of the apostolic seats, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, you know, the Church in Antioch that was a seat, um, the church in Rome, uh, the church in Alexandria, and the church in Jerusalem. Those were like seats uh, mm. where, um, uh, where um, I guess, sort of like um, there would be a, a bishop, and mm-hmm. and then there would be the churches in that um, 
in that C, um, spelled S-E-E. And so uh, what happened to the Coptic Orthodox Church is that in you've many um, Protestants will know about the great schism of the 11th century when the Eastern Orthodox Church had separated from the Catholic Church. But there was a separation that actually happened earlier. That's what we call the Great Schism for us. And that was in the 5th century. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when the very Eastern churches, which are now known as the the Oriental Orthodox family of churches, and Mm -hmm. that is the Coptic Church, the Armenian, the, 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 well, actually, well, I should say is the Church in Alexandria, because at the time the word Coptic wasn't even there. (laughs) The Church in Alexandria, the Church in Armenia. Uh, the uh, the Syria there was in Antioch. It was split. There was a one group that went with the in the the Alexandrian Church, and one group that went with Constantinople. Um, and it was a uh, it was at the Council of Chalcedon during the Council of Chalcedon, and it was a, a Christology debate. Um, it was also there was also some political reasons um and uh it's it's i don't often like to get into that debate so much because in the 1990s and early 2000s the eastern and oriental churches have undergone lots of dialogue um to the to the point where we've kind of agreed that the christological debate we we agreed that we actually agree, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that there may have been a lot of terminology. There's a lot of terminology um, and language, just you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, I want not disagreement, but misunderstandings, yeah, right. um, miscommunications, and so there's um, been lots of theological discussion around that in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't often like to get into those mm-hmm. very, you know, very specific uh, things other than we all agree that <laughs> we all agree that Christ is the son of God. He became man. He is fully human, fully divine. Yeah. Um, and then, and how we describe that afterwards is where we kind of got into uh, <laughs> yeah. into debate. Looking back now, after all those years, it's a feels a little bit like hair splitting, but at the time it was getting nasty. And then there was a, a breaking of communion with each other. So yes. yeah. yeah, now that enough time has passed, you're like, yeah, maybe we can get over some of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the split happened at that time, there were lots of attempts to re mm-hmm. reunite again and recommune again. And I think that the church, the, the church in Alexandria became more, um, uh, isolated from the West mm-hmm. after um, the Arab conquest, mm-hmm. and um, this started happening in the seventh century, mm-hmm. um, and that's where actually the Church in Alexandria becomes more known as the Coptic mm-hmm. Orthodox Church, because um, the the word Coptic itself is a very interesting word that literally just means Egyptian, mm. and. What happened was that uh, Egypt, Christianity kind of started in Alexandria and went further down, and Alexandria was kind of the center of the Hellenic culture. And so um, uh, in Egypt, you find that both Greek is spoken was spoken and also what we now call Coptic, which is the Egyptian language. Mm. Um the you know this language that they spoke <laughs> based on the hieroglyph you know the hieroglyphs you saw there was a spoken language kind of associated with it and that was the language spoken 
um, when Christianity came to Egypt, actually, they they actually took um, six characters from the latest stage of the hieroglyphs called the demotic stage and transliterated the rest of the language mm. into Greek letters mm-hmm. so that to make it easier to um, to translate the scriptures. Okay. Um, because if you can imagine the scriptures and hieroglyphs, it was uh, <laughs> it would have been much longer. <laughs> we would not be able to handle the codices in the churches or the schools. Um, and so, uh, so that was so. Um, to this day, if you ever walked into a Coptic Orthodox church and you picked up a book to look to, to look at how the service goes, mm-hmm. if you look at the often a lot of our books have English on one side mm-hmm. and then or, or or it has three columns: an English column, a column in Coptic, and a column in Arabic. If you look in the Coptic column, you'll actually notice that sometimes what's written there in Coptic is what looks like Coptic is actually Greek, because the church was multilingual for a very long time, and actually still remains multilingual in a lot of ways. Um, but in its that first century, there was there were Egyptian speakers and Greek speakers, and they accommodated all of them um, in the in the prayers and the divine liturgy. Um, so the Greek word for Egypt was Egyptos. Um, the Egyptians actually called them their land Kimi. Um, when the Arabs uh, came in from the Arab Peninsula and began and uh, and invaded Egypt and took over Egypt, they referred to the Egyptians as Egyptos. That was the, an Arabization of the Greek Egyptos. So Koptos from Koptos came Copts. <laughs> and that's what they referred to the Egyptians who at the time were majority Christians. And so that's how it stuck because over time, um, yes, many Egyptians converted to Islam. So over time, Coptic has come to mean Egyptian Christian because mm. those were the people that were there. Yeah. Um, so, so that's where we get the name Coptic, and so the Coptic Orthodox Church is it links itself historically to the Patriarchate of Alexandria from yeah. the first century. So that's the short story long, I guess. You'd say. <laughs> well, that's great to know. Yeah, and and I think that um, it, it's hard sometimes for for people to know, you know, what what exactly is being spoken about when we say Coptic Christian. So that that's really helpful. And then as um, when you see when you being a Coptic Christian, but in the United States with your dad being a priest and growing up in New York City, right? So then, how does that? Are those considered? Um, they're not like church plants, are they? Like they're like how does that work? Our family has a really unique story because we we're immigrants, but we didn't. I, I like to joke about this that we didn't come for a better life. <laughs> we actually we didn't immigrate. Our family is kind of unique in this way in that we didn't immigrate to the U.S. to live here and, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was the, a, a, a wave of immigration of Coptic Orthodox um, Christians actually did come to the North America mm-hmm. um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, uh, um, and so... Eventually, when that number started to increase a little bit, that diaspora community needed to be served, mm. um, and so um, a there was a, a group of clergy from Egypt, um, some of the older ones that were sent 
to the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. to uh, serve those communities. My father was not yet at that time clergy. He was a seminarian and mm-hmm. he went to seminary with all of them, mm-hmm. with many of them. So, but he actually came to uh, and continue to continue his studies here. And so he um, went to St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary in New York and then went to Union Theological Seminary for his PhD in, in Columbia. Um, and so he is. I, I joke with him um, that he was kind of a circuit preacher because he, you know, he was a student during the week, and then over the weekends we actually would hop to different Coptic Orthodox churches in the tri-state New York, New Jersey, Ooh. Connecticut area, and he would be given either the sermon during the liturgy right after the reading of the gospel, or he might be given um, after the liturgy to teach, um, do an, a deliver a sermon right after church, or to teach um, Sunday school teachers. Mm-hmm. And so every week we actually went to different um, churches, and at the time, you're going to find this very interesting. At the time, you could count the Coptic churches on one hand. Hmm. Um, they were, and now, um, now in North America, we have over maybe 150. I, I can't even count anymore how many churches we have because they oh, keep wow. growing in number. 150 churches. Mm-hmm. The number of Cops, you know, is estimated maybe close to a million. Um, we don't know because it's very hard to, uh, you kind of go by adherence in a congregation, but mm-hmm. that doesn't count people who decide either not to go um, mm-hmm. or if they decide, you know, it's, it's <laughs> wow. and, you know, and it grow and it's grown for two reasons. The, the, the first reason being yeah, the, that diaspora community from the 60s, you know, mm-hmm. continued to, they got married, they had children, so right. they have first and second generation. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those first and second generation um, married into um, non-Egyptians who joined the community. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing to be, there are Coptic people who are not Egyptian. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and then there's also been a wave of new immigration mm-hmm. in the past few decades as well um, that has also been growing the sizes of the of the churches um, so that's so eventually my father after he finished his PhD he eventually was ordained a priest um, to serve a, uh, a, com- a small community which is now not so small <laughs> in New Jersey and to uh, be the dean of the Coptic Orthodox Theological Seminary here in the US um, and so he's had that sort of part pastoring role and part teaching role all our lives um, pretty much so as you were writing this book putting joy into practice seven ways to lift your spirit from the early church and you wanted to write this book and kind of you're kind of introducing some of these early um, teachings they're not so far flung from Christianity in general but Uh you do talk about the desert elders or amas and abbas and maybe you can talk a little bit about who we're speaking of when we talk about these folks from the early centuries of christianity yes um so there was an idea of monasticism earlier than perhaps the third and fourth centuries but um in fact there are some early female monastic communities that are known of prior to the advent of desert monasticism. Mm. Um, what happened with the desert monasticism was um, 
uh, again, we're going to go back to church history, um, where there was a period of intense Christian persecution, especially in Egypt. Um, during the reign of Diocletian, the, there were a, quite a large number of Egyptian martyrs. Mm. Um, to the degree that the Coptic Orthodox Church's calendar we actually start our calendar from the beginning of the reign of Diocletian. So we're actually in year in the Coptic church, we call it Anno Martyrum and we're in the year 1735. Um, and so when Constantine lifted the persecution and then eventually converted to Christianity himself, um, Christianity ceased to, to become a persecuted or somewhat tolerated have sometimes tolerated, sometimes not religion in the Roman Empire and became more widely accepted. When it became more widely accepted, it also became easier to be a Christian. You didn't have to worry about <laughs> hiding or hiding your way of worship and the number of Christians increased. And so there were, um, there were some Christians who, in a way, they, they kind of, they sought out a martyrdom that was that what they what they now call like a white martyrdom, whereas as, as opposed to the red martyrdom of blood, you know, mm. that they wanted to to deny themselves. Their they wanted to witness for Christ and deny themselves, but the option of being a martyr was no longer there, and so instead they left the cities um, and went out into the desert to live ascetic lives and kind of strip away many excesses and uh, battle with their passions pretty much out in the desert and spend their time in prayer and reading and work uh, right, um, in, you know, in that order. And so the well-known ones is St. Anthony. They would call him, you know, they call him the father of monasticism. And he, he became well-known not just because of his being in the desert, but um, the patriarch of Alexandria, Athanasius, um, wrote a biography of him. You know, the desert more and more people started going out into the desert, men and women, um, to live kind of these lives away from the the busyness of society and um, and uh, try to struggle it out out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they became known as the desert ammas and abbas and ammas. They also started to become well known because people would hear about them and then they'd go and they'd visit them mm-hmm. and see how they lived and talk to them, maybe get a, a wise word from them. And so you have people like St. John Cassian who described his visit. You also have, her name is Igereya. Um, she had, she was a sister, a nun from uh, actually Spain who traveled and did a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Egypt and describes, you know, what she saw there. In addition to the desert monasticism, which is a hermit kind of monasticism, mm-hmm. in Egypt, it uh, the idea of community monasticism also became famous, um, and this is, I, and I mentioned this story actually in the in the book Saint Pachomius. He was not a Christian at the time; he was a soldier, and he and his um, his uh, platoon, I guess, alighted on uh, the uh, the city of Thebes, which is near Luxor, and there was a Christian village there that opened their doors of hospitality to them. And he was so touched by how the Christians welcomed him and the soldiers that he converted to Christianity. The monasticism that he developed was a more of a community one that you're pro- that we in the West are probably more familiar with because mm-hmm. you see a monastery with lots of monks or nuns in them. 
and uh, and he created something called the Pachomian Kunaneya, which is the Pachomian rule, the monastic rule, and it is actually on the Benedictine rule, which more people are familiar with in the West, is actually based on the Pachomian Kunaneya, the Pachomian monastic rule. Mm, yeah. So yeah, so this would be, I guess, what we'd call Egypt. Egypt was the birthplace of monasticism and then it spread you know mm-hmm. throughout the world and yeah they you know the desert fathers and mothers are just this wellspring of of wisdom and um and i think you know one of my favorite aspects of reading them are not just the things that they say but the stories that either they tell or the stories that are about them so one that I mentioned in my book actually is this beautiful story of the grapes and St. Macarius. <laughs> um, I don't know if you want me to recount the whole, uh, <laughs> the whole story. Well, um, or at least tell some of it so people want to read, read the rest. <laughs> what happens is an, a monk um, finds uh, some grapes and he gives them to St. Macarius, who's the older monk. And St. Macarius, he's sort of the elder monk and the elder of the community. And the thing is, uh, just again, to go back historically, so there were monasteries, right, with a community. Then there were the hermits who were out. And then there were sort of these quasi-communities where there were lots of hermits in their cells all over the place. But they would gather in community once a week for liturgy. And there would be like an elder about like who was sort of the oldest elder of them who they might go to um, for advice, for, you know, for guidance. Um, And so St. Macarius was one of those. And so one of the monks found some grapes or was given some grapes and he gave them to the elder. And St. Macarius sees the grapes and he says, well, you know, I, I, I can't eat these when my brother, the monk over here is, uh, is feeling ill. So let me go give them to him. So he gives them to the ill one. And then the ill one says, oh, I can't eat these when my brother, the monk over there is is uh, working so hard and might be hungry, so let me give them to him. And it goes on where every brother doesn't eat the grapes for himself and continues to hand them over <laughs> to another brother until eventually it comes back to St. Macarius. <laughs> and so he calls them the grapes of love. Mm. You know, and so it's just this beautiful, you know, story even made even more powerful by the fact that you don't you don't find grapes growing in the desert. You know? mm. And so they're, you know, they're living very ascetic lives. And so their food might just be, you know, lentils and dry bread. <laughs> yeah, right. And so to have these grapes, you know, fresh grapes and, and not just not eat them, but continue to give them to somebody else, you know, mm. is a great act of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe you could talk a little bit about um, these people in the desert were also doing the prayer of quiet and living contemplative lives, which yes. in, in our culture, um, in, in tends to be, we're, we tend to be cataphatic in, in our prayers instead of apophatic. And I think there's a big, might be a cultural difference, might be, a certainly a style difference about what we mean when we say like prayer of quiet and contemplative. And maybe you can sort of paint a picture of what some of that means, the lifestyle one of the things that they really tried to live out in the desert is that injunction by St. Paul to pray, pray without ceasing. Mm-hmm. And so um, even if I draw now from modern monasticism in Egypt, if you were to go and visit a community there, mm-hmm. um, it follows kind of the same structure as the early monks did, which is that they would start their day with one of the prayers of the hours, and the, the prayers of the hours are psalms divided up into certain hours of the day. 
and in the Coptic Church, there it's divided into seven. Um, and uh, uh, and so a, a monk might wake up, um, and if he's if he or, or she is a hermit, will do this on their own. If they're in a community, they might actually gather to do this, um, and they would pray the morning hour, and then they'd go back to their cell, and then they would have work to do. And, you know, in the, in the desert, they often wove baskets and they would mm-hmm. weave those baskets and then some go out into the, the villages to sell them. And that's how they, that's how they fed themselves. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of work. Some of the monasteries, for example, their work is actually translation. Um, and then they would, you know, sell those translation books and then that's how they would sustain themselves. Others have lots of They've actually farmed the deserts, <laughs> so they, you know, or they have livestock and they would work um, and do like sell cheese, you know, whatever. So they would have a product that, you know, they would sell to sustain themselves. And in during that work, they would want to also be praying. And so they developed something called what is called an arrow prayer. Mm-hmm. And those arrow prayers, the formula of an arrow prayer is pretty much any short prayer that you can pray mm-hmm. while you're doing something else. And so you could be weaving baskets. You could be um, just sitting quietly. <laughs> you know, you could be even in a crowd. Um, you could be walking. You could be, you know, any activity where you can, in your mind, be praying, even while your hands might be doing something else. And so... Um, often the arrow prayers were drawn from the Psalms. Um, so they would have a phrase from the Psalms, like make haste O God to deliver me. That was a very famous one. That was St. John Cassian's favorite one, actually. Another might be, uh, might simply be Lord help something very short. Um, one that became very much the most popular one is the Jesus prayer. My Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah. That's that's a very famous one. That became really the the famous one in the the Byzantine um, tradition. In the the Coptic Orthodox tradition, you'll find this among many Arab prayers being uh, being prayed. And so sometimes it would come from the Psalms, from the daily prayers that the monk or the nun would be praying. Sometimes their abba or their amma might recommend to them a mm-hmm. prayer. Mm-hmm. For example, one that was often recommended was Lord, as you will. Mm. Uh, that would be uh, one that was recommended. And so in my book, actually, I have a, a section where I list a few that are, that uh, like, um, that have been prayed, you know, obviously the Jesus prayer and then other ones. And I asked, actually asked around to different people what arrow prayers they had prayed. And all, they would often say, so my spiritual father gave me this prayer. There's a good list in there, um, and that's what they would do. And they would they would work, and they would pray. And then when it was time for the next hour of prayer, um, they would gather and they would pray that hour, etc. And this would be kind of the rhythm of the day. And then you know they they'll gather again in the, at night for the midnight praises for vigil, and then continue again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and that's their that that really was their way of praying unceasingly. Do you do you ever pray this way? And what do you pray? 
Um, my favorite one is the Jesus Prayer. Mm-hmm. Not, and again, that's my spiritual father had yeah. told me. Um, and and I often, because I would have a lot of trouble going to sleep, and so my mind would run with anxieties. And he would tell me, pray the Jesus Prayer. Mm-hmm. And I would pray the and I would pray the Jesus Prayer and do a few repetitions, and um, and that would help. Um, and now, as as a mom, it's actually also been really helpful because mm. there are. Um, there are lots of times where it's very hard to maintain a your kind of like a rhythm of prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, say you try to get up early to pray, and then one of the kids wakes up, and they, you know, mm-hmm. um, or it's just it's the day can get kind of almost blend into itself sometimes, mm-hmm. and so having it sort of there for me to pray while I'm, for example, uh, I don't know, washing dishes or um, sitting and playing with one of one of my kids, especially when they were younger. Um, you know, and we'd pray, play blocks or something like that. So it might be something I'd pray in the back of my mind. Um, and I found too that it that it definitely helped me be more peaceful mother mm. when I um, when I would make it a habit to pray arrow prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often use the Jesus prayer. I also might use make haste, O God, to deliver me. Another one is save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Um, so I guess they they come up at different times mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> the, the reason they're called arrow prayers are because the idea is that these prayers are short and they go straight up to God yeah. and so so when we use them it's we use them in repetition but we also repeat them so that when we need them they're there almost like as a quiver they'll come out spontaneously when needed um, you know so say I'm losing my patience <laughs> I might. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I might say, Lord, have mercy, or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And that might help, you know, bring me down a notch. Um, you know, and so, uh, or in a situation where I feel like I'm overwhelmed, you know, save me, oh God, for the waters have come up to my neck, that will, that will come. And it'll come because I've been repeating it, so it's there. One of the things I wanted to to ask you, and I'm I'm not sure if I'm how I'm going to pronounce this, the apath- apathia, mm-hmm. apathia, or I, apathia. How, I've heard it's uh, pronounced apath- apathia, but apathia, it, yeah. And, it's a Greek word. It's a Greek word. Ultimately, right. <laughs> so I have to find out how the Greeks pronounce it. Yeah, and <laughs> of course, when you say apathia, the first thing we would think is apathy, but it's it's quite something very different, and this this kind of um, holy indifference, holy balance and equilibrium. I was um, wanting to you to explain that a little bit. This is something else that the desert elders would um, be striving for, this state, this, this kind of skilled management, I've heard it called too, that um, this is what is um, comes through the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you can reach this place of apathia. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I really, and, and this is kind of where you almost, this feels very Eastern, almost like Buddhism in, in a sense of uh, letting letting things go or, or whatever. It's not very American, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I love this idea of apathia. Um, this is the place of faith. This is walking in trust with God. And maybe you can talk a little bit about it. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's it's often in, talked about in contrast to the passions. Mm. So when you talk about apathia, it is it's not about indifference, but it's more about, like you said, equanimity, 
being in balance, um, and less moved by the passions. Um, and that is really what often the, the desert fathers and mothers would fight with were the passions. And that's actually what we all kind of fight with. And so now the word, the passions can be a kind of a tricky word as well. Mm. Um, because, um, so we talk about, for example, the passion of Christ, that is a different word. (laughs) That is a different meaning for the word, for example, because that comes from a Latin word that has, has links to suffering and endurance. Mm. But the passions that we're talking about, um, are another translation actually, uh, it's also called the carnal lusts. That's another word that like another phrase that has been used to describe them. And what they are, are normal aspects of the human condition that, or normal aspects of being human that if we are imbalanced in the way we feed them or treat them, they kind of, they can enslave us. Um, and, uh, if we let it go too far. Um, and so if you read the fathers, there's often different lists. Um, you know, for example, you might've heard of the seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. These actually come from the, these are seven passions that, and it includes things like gluttony, lust, greed, anger, envy, sloth, vainglory. And these are, they all stem from something that is entirely human and natural. Um, But when not uh, treated in balance can take over us. And so a very common example, for example, is lust. And you can often see lust in a very, uh, acted out in very imbalanced, you know, it's lust comes from a very normal human need a sexual desire is a human need right it's a human something that happens to humans but when it's uh out of balance you see for example things like uh pornography addiction and if you ever speak to somebody who's who's a addicted to pornography you know they it probably was quite pleasurable in the beginning but it eventually enslaves that person and they you when you talk to them they're not joyful at all they're quite miserable mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and they would do anything to actually get out of that addiction. Pornography is just one example. There's so many. A gluttony, for example. We, we're, we're people. We need to eat. <laughs> and so eating is normal and required for life, right? But when we when it becomes something, again, that enslaves us, when we eat, not because we are hungry, but for example, emotional eating, um, these are things that eventually lead us to problems. Um, you know, for example, and there are a number of health problems that can result from eating when you're not actually hungry, but because of other things. And uh, it can, again, be something out of balance. Once it gets out of balance, this is what they called the passions. And when those things take over, they actually steal our joy. Um, And in the book, when I talk about joy, um, I talk about joy in terms of something that we experience in the giving and receiving of sacrificial love. That's how I define it. And um, that departs a little bit from what we kind of think of as joy. We kind of think of joy as something that's sort of like happiness times 10, you know, or <laughs> or exuberance. And, and while, yes, sometimes joy can feel that way, um, the joy that when the father the fathers talk about is that what we talked about Evagrius of Pontus. Evagrius of Pontus actually defines joy as the child of peace and love. And um, from there, you get that sense of equanimity. It's about peace and love, really. And and so and actually, for me as a Christian, that was also that that discovery was quite a relief because sometimes when we say we should rejoice in the Lord always, right? It says, you know, St. Paul says that in the, 
in the rejoice in the Lord always, right? And then you think, does that mean I always have to be smiling? Does that mean I'm always have to be buoyant and happy and jumping around in excitement? And, you know, um, how are you today? I'm blessed, you know, like that, that sort of, you know, um, or is it something deeper than that? Um, does it always have to manifest itself in this sort of external way? And learning from the the fathers and mothers, yes, it is actually something deeper and internal, and it manifests itself less in a very exuberant uh, way and more in this peace, in this peace that comes from a joy that comes from inside, that comes from something that doesn't, doesn't that it's, it's not something that we can sort of grasp, but something that's given to us because of God, because of God wanting to give it to us. And, um, and that kind of gets us out of that, that cycle, that almost that hedonistic treadmill where we were trying to, we're running after joy, but we're really getting our pleasures. And over time, the pleasures start become less pleasurable and start to enslave us. And to get out of that, we have to kind of break that cycle and go back into this understanding of, of joy as something that God gives us and that we orient ourselves towards so that he can give it to us. Well, it's it's interesting because we have, um, I think that the word joy in English is, uh, we will often think of it as, as kind of a, you know, a happiness, but really, as it's being talked about here, it's, it's, it's a very nice, nuanced way of seeing it's like a sweet, sustained peace. And that's different. You know, that means you can have joy and sorrow at the same time and you can grieve and have joy because joy isn't circumstantial. And I think that's important to know that, you know, you, you can it be well with your soul? It's kind of what we're talking about. It can still be well with your soul, you know, even if you don't. Even if you're a hermit and you have just bread and salt, <laughs> you know, what, is that is that happiness? You know, probably not. It's probably not, you know, this time of extreme, you know, wonderful, you know, pleasures. But but, it, but it's it still can be joy. And I, because what you're saying about the passions and about you know indulging in our passions, it seems great and leaves us miserable. Is such an interesting important message for our times because we're like we're coming up to Christmas right and uh-huh. and it's about like what would you what do you want for Christmas and maybe if you get that thing uh-huh. you'll have joy <laughs> uh-huh. like uh-huh. opposite of what it means right yeah so yeah. it's interesting we think that joy will come to us through some external thing but really God provides joy deep down yeah yeah Um, So many good things you have. I just want to read um, what some of these seven practices are. If you want to pick one out, um, you could pick one out. But I want people to know what these chapters are. Um, You you first have uh, invitation chapters one and two. What is joy? The joy thieves. And then the practices are um, the practices that will put joy into practice are praying the hours, visiting the sick, the joy of repentance, giving thanks hospitality, arrow prayers, singing praises to God. And um, you have some great epilogue in in there as well. I really think your book is... Um, it's fantastic. It's also great, I think, because it's not like a lot of the other Christian books out there in the sense of there's a different point of view, I think, with... Um, hearkening back to earlier Christianity for some reason that we are richer for going deeper into Christian history and understanding more of what's going on. Because as you were talking about the passions, 
um, this this is something I'd love love to underscore. I'm writing about this in my book that I'm that I'm writing right now. Is that when we're talking about passions and which later gets translated into the deadly sins, this this is um, gets changed into a crime and punishment thing. But for the Eastern uh, theologians, it was about sickness and health. Yes. And I think that yes. is extremely important that this isn't about just constant condemnation about, oh, passions, let's constantly condemn them. It was more like, no, you're human. You're going to you're going to feel things. You're going to want things. And let's just attend to those and, um, you know, be mindful of what these normal passions are and not give in to them because you'll you'll you won't be well, but it's not like, okay, sinner, what's the thing you got wrong? <laughs> right. You know, so there's a real yeah. different twist there. Mm -hmm. And if you fall into them, there is repentance and you can get back out of them. There, there it's, um, and you know, you're, what you're pointing to is one of the, if there is one difference between Western and Eastern Christianity, I, I, I hesitate to say difference because it, we have a common source, right? Um, but if there's a, a difference, it's more of a difference in emphasis. And in Eastern Christianity, the emphasis is on our, we are created in the image of God, but the image is broken. And when we think about, for, so for in the West, for example, you might be talking about original sin, right? In the East, you might, you our nature was corrupted. And sin is a sickness. And we need to be healed from it. For example, if I go back to St. Athanasius of Alexandria, for example, and he, he has this wonderful treatise that everyone should read called On the Incarnation. And in there he makes an analogy to an artist who um, paints a beautiful picture. And then the picture gets corrupted over time. Who is the best person to restore that image? It's going to be the artist. And that analogy is why God became man, <laughs> because it is God, it is only God who can restore his image and likeness. Christianity for us is that restoration of the, the whole Christian path is the restoration of that image. When we're talking about the passions, you know, I mentioned the passions, their joy thieves, right? Because in the beginning of the book, when I talk about what is joy, the enemy of joy is not the passion. The passions are just thieves. They steal away our joy, but we can get back to them. The enemy of joy is death. But when people talk about not having joy, they're talking about grief. They're talking about tragedy. They're talking about war. You know, they're talking about all the terrible, terrible things that happen. And the thing that gives us joy, even in that, is because we have the resurrection. Christ's death and resurrection that conquers death. That's what makes Christianity Christianity, <laughs> the belief that Christ rose from the dead. And because we have the resurrection, joy is possible for us. That's where we can have joy even in sorrow, right? That's where we can have joy even in grief. And so when we talk about passions, we're not talking about something that can destroy us. Only death could destroy us, and that was conquered already. That's done, right? So what we're talking about are things that can try to steal, but we can always come back there's always an opportunity to come back, to, to have that balance again. And that coming back and that having balance is, are those, you know, those practices that uh, I mentioned in the, if you read them out, you know, you read them out. Some of them are sort of inner life. They're a little bit related to inner life. Some of them are 
related to actually coming out, going out into the community, like visiting the sick, for example, or hospitality, being engaged uh, with people in various ways. Um, and that's how we that's how we come back to that balance and are able to receive the joy that God wants to give us. This has been great. Just uh, This just feels like a taste. We could dive into so much more in the book, but um, I'll leave that up to the listeners to, to get your book. So it's called Putting Joy into Practice, Seven Ways to Lift Your Spirit from the Early Church. And um, where are the places that people can find you online or, or, or uh, elsewhere? Sure. Well, I have a blog and my blog is called Being in Community. Um, and the website is the same, beingincommunity.com. Um, you can also find me on uh, Twitter at a uh, sorry at pk farag, pkfarag. I'm also on Facebook. I have two Facebook pages. One is Phoebe Farag Michiel author, and the other is my blog page, Being in Community. Um, so, uh, and you, of course, my book is available wherever books are sold <laughs> um, online on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local independent bookstore, um, and of course from Paraclete Press, um, where it was. Uh, it was published. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing some time with us and, and telling us about this. Is there anything that you'd like, any final words of wisdom or something from the book that you'd like to share before we head out? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the, the seventh practice about singing praise, where this is such the season for it, and it's starting to kind of almost fall out of style, and this is something we need to reclaim a little bit, and that is singing praise together, because that's the um, that's the practice. So, you know, we can often sing on our own, and that's good, but the, the action of getting together to sing praises to God is where the 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 joy lies. And I actually I um I quoted Saint Augustine in the book with this beautiful quote where he says, um, "Oh God, to know you is life; to serve you is freedom; to praise you is the joy is the soul's joy and delight. When large numbers of people share their joy in common, the happiness of each is greater because each adds fuels to the other's flame." Um, and uh, and, you know, we're in this season where, you know, caroling used to be a thing, right? People would go around and sing carols and, you know, and, you know, people still do that. They they might do that at church or they might do it in in, uh, in gatherings. Um, you know, there's those Handel's Messiah singings, um, for example. In my own, in the Coptic Orthodox Church, we have a special, so we have midnight praises all year long. So we have a, a vigil that we do on Saturdays um, before we go back to church on Sunday for Divine Liturgy. And, um, and we sing praises and they're all a lot of the praises are based on the the psalms um there's some some of them are just the psalm a psalm being sung um and then during advent we have special songs that we sing um during the vigil for the advent season and so it's it's just it's and and so you know in the book I encourage people to look into their own traditions and see where there is a tradition of getting together and singing praise to God. And, um, and if, if you're, if it's happening already to do it, if it's not revive it. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's, it's this, this beautiful opportunity to kind of get away from, you know, often our prayers are are very much linked to what's going on in our lives and what's going on in the world. And singing praise is the one kind of prayer where we forget about all of that and just sing about God. And then we do it together. And it doesn't matter who we are, what we are, when we're together and we're all singing about God. It just it gives us power that, that comes from it that we don't get when we do it alone. 
And it's, uh, and, and, you know, I just, I wanted to mention it because we're in that season of singing <laughs> and it's, it's good to, you know, to, if there's an opportunity to, to do it, to, to, to do it, to get back into it and find a chance to sing together with others, um, praises to God. It's really just, a uh, perhaps one of the, the most powerful ways really that we can orient ourselves to joy. Mm, thank you for that. <laughs> 